0: We welcome you to Bible class at St. Paul's Lutheran Church and we welcome our KFUO listening audience and today we're going to start the new church year in our Bible study because next week is the first Sunday in Advent and that uh, is the first Sunday of the church year, not the calendar year, but the church year. And so we will begin with uh, readings that reflect uh, the coming. That's what Advent means is coming. And we'll talk about that a little more later. But we're going to begin with our Old Testament reading, and it is a powerful one. It's from Isaiah 64, verses 1 to 9. We need to remind ourselves some about uh, the prophet Isaiah before we begin this lesson to understand uh, the the reading for today. You have to remember that Isaiah was writing, we know when he was writing because he tells us at the first of the book, the kings that were in office when he wrote. So, we know the dates of those kings, and what we realize with the prophet Isaiah is that prophet Isaiah was writing probably about 750 BC. Now that's very significant Because the events he writes about concerning Jerusalem and Judah, the rise of the Babylonian Empire, the conquest of Jerusalem, the carrying of the people off into exile into Babylon, and even their return from Babylon under the Persians. It's all talked about in Isaiah, and it's 200 years away. It's 200 years away. People who don't believe in the divine inspiration of Scripture will boldly say, there's no way this guy could have known that that far in advance with this much detail? No way. And therefore they write off the book of Isaiah as a book that was written after these things occurred, looking back. But they deny the divine inspiration of Scripture that God could have told Isaiah, what to write? He prophesied the coming of Christ. He was so specific that in a couple of chapters, when he's talking about how the Persians are going to let the people go from their captivity, that he calls the leader of Persia, Cyrus. Cyrus. That was his name, 200 years later. We believe in the divine inspiration of Scripture, and we believe that God moved the prophet Isaiah to write the words that he wrote. Now he was writing to Judah, the people in Judah. And they had already gone after all kinds of idols. And as we get further along in Isaiah, especially into the chapters 60 and up, he's actually talking about the joyous return of the exiles. And this joyous return, uh, many passages in that are quoted in the book of Revelation because that will be joyous too when Christ comes again for the believers. In chapter 64, we have Isaiah pleading with God to come. And basically his argument is this. The people, when they were carried off into exile in Babylon, sin was rampant. Lord, why have you waited so long? Come down and fix this before they go back to Israel or it'll be as bad as it ever was. That's basically his appeal. This has got to be fixed. They're not fixed yet. So come. And so that's what the first verse of Isaiah says. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Come down. Rend the heavens and come down, put a stop to this rampant sin. The sin is so bad, Isaiah is appealing to God to come down and remedy this before they return from the Babylonian captivity. Now, it says that the mountains might quake at your presence. This is to get their attention. Not subtle, this is to get their attention. Israel is no longer what they're supposed to be. Now, Israel was supposed to be a nation that worshiped only one God. The only nation that worshiped only one God. All other nations worshiped lots. They were to be the only nation that worshiped God, and because of the mighty things that God had done for them, they were supposed to be a witness to the other nations That their God was the true God. However, when they began to worship idols, when they began to introduce that into the land, that witness was gone. Further, when other nations began to conquer them and rule over them, including Babylon, In those days, when another nation conquered you, the belief was that their God was greater than your God. So, when God exercised judgment upon them and sent the Babylonians to destroy them, even the people then concluded, Our God has abandoned us. Our God has abandoned us. So they had gone from their purpose of being a witness to the nations, that there is only one true God, to believing their God had been conquered, and that they had been abandoned. That's the way they felt when they went into captivity. That was the belief of the day. So they were a long way from what they should be. So the Isaiah is appealing, come down, Lord, and remedy this. Remedy the sin And notice what it says at the last of verse two, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Restore your standing in not only Israel, but among the nations, among the nations. That's his appeal to God. All right, verse 3, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence, okay? That's probably referring to the crossing of the Red Sea. That was the awesome deed of the Old Testament, and it was not something the people looked for. They were standing on the edge of the sea. They believed they were doomed by the Egyptians and the sea parts. Little unexpected. okay? Little unexpected. That's probably what's being referred to here, but it got their attention. Shake the mountains and get the nation's attention. For from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you, who acts for those who wait for him. Okay? Waiting, what is it to wait for God? It's defined here. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Those are the two things that waiting people do. That's what we're to be about as we wait for Christ to come again. We're to do works of righteousness. We're about doing God's work. Good works are defined as those things done by the person who believes in Christ according to God's commandments. Those are good deeds. Those are works of righteousness. So we're about doing God's work and remembering what he's done for us. Remembering what he's done for us. We do that constantly. Because we constantly preach what Jesus Christ has done for us. That's a constant reminder of not only what he's done for us, but what are the implications of what he's done for our lives. So we are waiting on him to come, just as the people then What do people do who are waiting? God's will, remembering what He's done for them. That's waiting. Waiting defined. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? That's a rhetorical question. The answer, yes, we will, even and in spite of the fact that we've been long in our sin and that God is angry, we will be saved. We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. The line For you have hidden your face from us. That was the general belief. He's abandoned us. The exile proves that. He's abandoned us, he's turned his back on us. The very thing Jesus would say on the cross My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But now it changes. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. Now, this is an appeal for God's grace, and it's appealing to the very nature of God. God is the one that had chosen them. God is the one that had raised them as a nation, made them his own, entered into a covenant relationship with them, saved them from the Egyptians. You can just go on and on. And basically what the people are saying is, God, you've really made a big investment in us. You're really not going to boot us out, are you? And what they're basically saying on the lowest level is this. God, you love us. We know you do. Don't be so angry. Save us. Save us. We are the clay, you are our potter. You've made us what we are. We are all the work of your hand. Any of us can say that. Any of us can say that. And be not so terribly angry. In other words, they know there's judgment. Isaiah knows their judgment for what they've done wrong. But it's kind of an appeal to God. God, don't take it to the extreme. Don't go overboard on the judgment. We're your people. And remember not iniquity forever. I will remember your sins no more. Behold, please look. We are your people. Don't pour all your wrath and anger out on us. You called us. You love us. Pour out your grace upon us and forgive us. That is the appeal from Isaiah in their behalf. Okay? We know God. You love us. And we can say that too. We know it. And how do we know it? They knew it because God had saved them and given them so many things. We know it because Jesus Christ came in our behalf and died and rose again for us and has given us all things. So we know God loves us so we can appeal to God and his mercy and grace. Moses used to do this. God would get so mad at the children of Israel, and Moses would say, now hold on here. You're talking about wiping out all these people. You wipe out all these people, what are the other nations going to say about you? You're a bad dude. You don't want that reputation. So forgive them. Tell them God did do it. Got to do. Moses would appeal to the goodness of God, to the love. God is love. Remember, God doesn't want to punish. We call that his alien work. God wants to love. That's his proper work. Moses would appeal to God based on his proper work what he really wanted to do. Our sin is what forces him to do what he doesn't want to do, which is punish. So, Isaiah, Moses, all appeal to God to love, which is his very nature, his very nature. So this passage talks about God coming, and that's why it's chosen for the first Sunday in Advent uh, is God's coming. Okay, questions about that one? Yeah, Don? We don't know that. Now, ultimately, Isaiah wrote for the people to read it. And Isaiah does call for them to repent before all this happens to them. But this isn't just between Isaiah and God. His word was a prophetic word for the people. For the people. Which they did not listen to. Yes: Yes: The, the question is, uh, the people back then were clearly punished by God, as when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. Are we punished today? based on our sin? Well, that's a tough question. I can't tell you that some bad thing happens to you because you sinned. Now I know that some people feel that way They do something bad and then they wait for the God's shoe to drop. What's he going to do to me this time? But we have to put this into perspective. We live in a sinful world. We brought that sin. Disease is a result of sin. War is a result of sin. Terrorism is a result of sin. We brought this into creation. Is there a correlation between what you do and what you get? Now, that's very difficult to answer because we don't know the will of God. But I can tell you this. There's nobody here that God punishes every time you sin, because if he punished us every time we sin, we would be some real miserable people. There's also the argument that he doesn't punish us, because if he punishes us, what was the punishment for sin that Jesus Christ took on the cross? We're told that he was punished for the sins of the world. So there are lots of things that go into that answer. We live by faith. We'll live by faith in a God who forgives us. We're also told in the book of Hebrews that the chastisement of the Lord is what he does. In other words, do you, do you punish your children when they do something wrong? And what is the purpose of that punishment? The purpose of that punishment is not because you love to punish. It is to teach them. It is to teach them. Because you love them that's how we're supposed to look at the way God deals with us, not as punishment but as chastisement to teach his children what should they should do. So, is God going to call down punishment on our nation He'd be justified. We've given him enough reason. But who has known the mind of the Lord? All we can do is look at his word, seek to follow it, and know that he will make those decisions. When we get to heaven, we'll know. But right now, we can't discern all that the prophets told them it was going to happen. They didn't believe the prophets. They didn't turn from their sin. We are all sinful people. We are called upon to turn from our sin or suffer the punishment of God. Same rules hold. But how God carries it out. I can't tell you today that in 50 years, something's going to happen to this nation. God has not revealed that to me. He's not inspired me to say that. So we just simply live by faith in His forgiveness, seek to do His will, and wait. Back up here, doing righteous deeds and remembering what He's done for us—that's about all we can do. That's about all we can do. It's—it's it's, uh, very dangerous to to conclude this is because God's angry. Uh, I. I I don't tell people that in my office, you know, my life's a mess and this has gone wrong and this has gone wrong, and I don't say, well, if you've stopped sinning, some of this stuff might stop, okay? I can't do that. That may not be. Maybe it's a trial to strengthen their faith. I don't know that. I don't know that. If they repent of their sins, I forgive them. So, uh, for Jesus' sake, but I can't know how God is working in their lives. It's A long answer, but you ask, okay? All right, anything else on this one? All right, let's look at 1 Corinthians here, the epistle. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, that's his usual beginning, grace and peace. Because he has given you his grace, which is forgiveness, you now have peace with God. So they go hand in hand. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is part of Paul's beginning of this letter. Uh, Even though there are lots of problems in Corinth, he begins positively, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. God does not give grace apart from Christ Jesus. It is in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. Not lacking in any gift. This church is not lacking in any gift because God sees to it that we have what we need. And that's hard to see in a church this large. But I always tell this to our new members. Many of you have heard this story. I was in Starkville, Mississippi, The pastor. We had about 60 people in church on Sunday. We had one guy that could play the electronic organ. One guy. He played every week. He came in one week and he said, Pastor, I got some bad news. He said, I've been transferred. I'm leaving Starkville. So the next Sunday I announced that our one and only organist was leaving. There was an audible groan. We probably knew about 10 hymns we could sing acapella and we were going to be relegated to that so I asked, after I made the announcement if anyone can play the organ or the piano talk to me we need you so after the service I was greeting and I noticed that one lady stayed back and I went over and said Gene what can I do for you she said, uh, Pastor, I can play the organ. I said, Jean, you've been a member of this church for years. Nobody knows that. Why didn't you tell us? You didn't need me. But she was there. And God supplies the gifts that his church I still believe that, even a church this big. People emerge all the time, they can do things you don't know they can do. God supplies. Not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless. That's probably pointing to their baptism. In the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, not we are faithful. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You were called into that fellowship in baptism. And therefore, God, from that moment on, is always faithful to you. All right, I want to move on to the gospel. There are two Gospels appointed for next week. One of them is from Mark and concerns the end of the world. Now let me say this, and I say this often and people look puzzled. Advent is not about the coming of Jesus at Bethlehem. He's already done it. Advent for us is the coming of Christ the second time. So that's why many times they appoint a lesson for the first Sunday in Advent that has to do with the end, the second coming. The problem is we've been talking about the second coming of Jesus for three weeks so we're not going to do it next week. So we pick the alternate. The alternate does not seem to make any sense at all. Why? In the world, on the first Sunday of Advent, would reread the Palm Sunday gospel lesson. Because that's what it is. This is Palm Sunday. And we read it because it is his coming. It's the day that he was truly revealed as the Messiah. It's the Messiah revealed. Handy comes. So let's look at this. There are three parts to this, the entry, the coming, the messianic uh, animal, and the jubilation. Um, Notice how carefully His coming is ordered, the events are ordered. He tells the disciples exactly what they will find. And it is exactly that way. Sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. Now, these events are foretold exactly in the book of Zechariah, chapter 9. Many times we read, let me read you those verses from Zechariah, and you will see how closely uh, this prophecy is filled, fulfilled. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Isn't that what they did? Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. When an animal was going to be used for a holy purpose, It was not used for any mundane work before its holy purpose. That's why Jesus said it's a cult that has never been written. He was the first. It was a holy purpose. A holy purpose. The Messiah was going to be revealed on this. Uh, Zechariah 9 is talking about the Messiah. So this is to fulfill that prophecy. But there's another weird prophecy, and I'll I'll try to uh explain this to you. It's back in Genesis, and it's under the blessing that was given to the tribe of Judah. It's in Genesis chapter 49. Uh, and it goes like this. Now, this is the, the blessing to Judah. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. That's the prophecy that Jesus is going to come from the tribe of Judah. He was the fourth brother. Simeon was eliminated because he committed incest. No, Reuben. Simeon and Levi were eliminated because they had killed an entire town of men. So it fell to Judah. Notice all the discussion that he is like a lion, and that's where we get the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's why in, uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, Jesus is a lion, okay, and all those stories. Now, let me read this verse again. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Nobody in their right mind ties a donkey to a grapevine. What is the donkey going to do? Eat all the grapes and probably all the vine. In this passage, he's untied, untied, okay? Not tied, untied. There's a lot more to that passage, but I'm not going into it now. All right. Notice then when he enters, uh, and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, And he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. So there was jubilation. Joy and excitement, just as the Zechariah passage said, Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. They are rejoicing, and they don't even know why. This Jesus is coming as the Messiah. And even though they don't know why, they're crying, Hosanna. Hosanna means save us. So Jesus comes in on a colt that's been set aside for a holy purpose. As the prophecy said, the people rejoice and praise him as the Messiah, even though they don't understand fully that he is. But they give him his due. And so they cry, Hosanna. This is the greeting of the Messiah coming in to the city of Jerusalem. God knows it. Jesus knows it. The disciples might have a a clue. Nobody else does but God raises up people to praise him even if they don't understand why. And he receives the welcoming that the Messiah is due as he comes. We will welcome the Messiah when he comes a second time. You see, we can talk about several comings when it comes to Jesus. He came, he came to Jerusalem riding on a donkey. That's one. He came when he was born in Bethlehem. He broke into our world. He rent the heavens and came down. He will come again at his second coming in power. But he's also coming to us now. Because he comes to us every time we hear the word. And every time we receive the sacrament so. God is constantly coming to us. You could say Isaiah's prayer has been answered. He sent his own son to be born into the world. He sent his own son to go to the cross in Jerusalem. He sends his own son a second time. And he sends his own son to his people week in and week out through word and sacrament. So when we celebrate Advent, we're thinking of all Christ's coming. So we read this lesson on the first Sunday of Advent. What do we read on the next two? John the Baptist focuses on John the Baptist in week two and three, and his call to repentance. Because John is calling on us to repent and be ready for Christ's second coming, okay? Second coming, just like he called on them to repent. Before Christ came to prepare the way for Christ, now he's calling on us to repent, to prepare for Jesus to come the second time. So we read about John the Baptist. Only on the fourth Sunday of Advent, the fourth Sunday of Advent, do we read about the announcement of the birth of Jesus. And then we celebrate Christmas. So it's ordered in that way. Okay? It's ordered in that way. Um, so the emphasis is on Christ for us coming again. And we are prepared for his coming again by his coming to us in word and sacrament. Okay. So that's the Advent emphasis. And that's why we read Palm Sunday on the first Sunday in Advent. And next week the blue pyramids come out, thank God, I'm tired of green. It's time for something different. All right, questions. Now, this year at St. Paul's, it's going to be a little different because we're not going to have the fourth Sunday of Advent because Christmas Eve is on Sunday. Now, let me explain this to you. I've explained this the living way. I'll explain it to you. Christmas Eve is on Sunday. We're going to have five services: eight, 9: 30 and 10:45 in the morning will be Christmas Eve services. They're not going to be Advent Four. they're going to be Christmas Eve. Okay? The ten forty-five service will include a puppet show for the kids. Then that evening we're having the eight o'clock service where Aaron Bodie sings and the ten thirty candlelight service. But we're not having the two afternoon services. We didn't figure we needed seven. Church services in one day. Okay? So we're having five. Three in the morning, two in the evening, and they'll all be Christmas Eve. And then Christmas worship at 10 o'clock on Monday morning. So you're going to see it in print, but I wanted to explain it to you. All right, other questions or comments? All right. Let's close. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.